Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's good to see you today, those of you that are here with me in Auditorium 1 and those across the way in Auditorium 2 and those that are joining us online. Uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 18, and we will get there in just a few moments. You know, in the weeks leading up to Easter, millions of Christians around the world take time to think about why Jesus suffered and died. And way back about nine months ago, as Jim and I were working on the preaching calendar, we worked things out so we would be at this place at this time. And so what we're going to do for the weeks leading up to Easter is that we're going to look at how John, the author of the gospel according to John, and one of Jesus' closest friends and a firsthand eyewitness of all that happened, we're going to look at how John tells the story of Jesus' last days, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, and his death on the cross. And I've entitled this message, Journey to the Cross, but it's not really just the title of this message. It's kind of an umbrella title for this whole section and these next two chapters in John chapter 18 and 19. And the very first scene that we see here in John 18, and we'll be looking at it for the next couple of weeks, this is a very famous passage. It's about the arrest of Jesus. It's about Judas bringing the soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, Jesus being arrested. And there is a lot tucked inside of this chapter. So let's begin this morning by reading uh, the first 14 verses of John chapter 18. John 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if it's me you're looking for, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I'm going to walk through this story because I want to paint a picture of what's happening here to help you understand what's going on. And then with this picture in mind, I want to talk about how we should respond to what we've learned, what we learned in this story. But first, I want to, 
I want to look at this story as it's said in the context of the whole Bible. It's interesting, I'll never forget this, maybe you had this experience, um, but uh, the first time that I went online to check out Google Earth, it came up with a, a whole picture, uh, a picture of the whole planet, and I thought to myself, I mean, because this is like real time from a satellite, and so I'm thinking, wow, that is the way God sees this world. And, and it just kind of blows your mind, you know, it, 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 to see the big picture like that. And then, and this was so cool, you type in an address, and, and then frame by frame, everything narrows down to a very precise location, which is so cool. And you get this close-up, an almost eyewitness account of what it looks like to be on campus here. And you can actually zoom in a whole lot closer. You can take your little man and walk around the building, which, is, which just blows my mind. But... Uh, you need to know that your Bible functions like that. The Bible opens, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and boom, there's the cosmos. And then the rest of the Bible just narrows down, frame by frame by frame by frame, with everything concentrated, gathering information, focusing attention to one point, one place, one time, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 18, Jesus is just moments from going to the cross to suffer and die in our place for our sins. And all of the Bible, all of human history has been slowly, carefully, methodically, prophetically, intentionally gaining momentum and steam, bringing us to this place where Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, is ultimately going to hang on that cross. And so we pick up that story today. And the story starts with an unholy alliance, which you see in the first three verses, verse, eight, uh, verse one of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, he's been speaking in the upper room. He's been teaching his disciples. And then as we've seen, like for the last six weeks, we've uh, kind of settled in on John 17 where Jesus is praying for his disciples. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, and John doesn't tell us which garden it was, but the other gospels tells us that this was the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So just push pause for just a second. It's dark, all this is happening at night, it's under the cover of darkness, and not only is the landscape physically dark, but it's spiritually dark as well. And when John talks about the brook of Kidron, it's, he's talking about the Kidron Valley, which separates the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. And there's a valley in between uh, the two. And John tells us that as Jesus and his disciples walked from Jerusalem down into the valley, they come to the brook and that was at the bottom of the valley and they cross that. Now, when you go to Israel with us, You'll get to see that, and we'll walk some of that same route that Jesus walked. Now, Jesus is with his 11 disciples. Judas, the betrayer, has already left the group. We read about that back in chapter 13, verse 27, where we read that Satan had filled Judas, and he left to set up Jesus' arrest to betray him, and that's what he's been doing, setting up all the pieces to, to put in motion to arrest Jesus. Now, it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, uh, it, it basically breaks into two parts. 
the first three years of Jesus' ministry, and then the final week. And so we're in the final week now. And if this was a movie, this is where the camera would pan in and the movement would slow way down and everything would be focused on every single detail of what's happening. And John gives us a lot of details. Because we've reached the climax of John's story, but it's even more than that. We've reached the pivot point of human history. So Jesus is with his 11. One is gone, Judas the betrayer. They're walking to the garden at night under the cover of darkness. They're, they're passing through the Kidron Valley and they're crossing over a brook or a stream at the base of the Kidron Valley. Now, you need to know, and this is bizarre, but this stream would have been filled with blood. This was the season of Passover where God's people would bring a lamb without spot or blemish to sacrifice for the temp uh, temporary forgiveness of their sins, a lamb that foreshadowed Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the baptizer declared, and as the apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb, and he's been slain. So they would bring a, a, a lamb without spot or blemish, showing the sinless per perfection of the coming Messiah, of Jesus, and they would bring it to the temple where the high priest uh, would lay his hands on the lamb and confess the sins of the people over the lamb, and then the lamb was slaughtered as a substitute because the wages of sin is death. And over 200,000 lambs were slain during Passover, and that means there is a literal river of blood flowing out of the temple, down into the Kidron Valley, and into the stream. So as Jesus steps over that stream, there's blood in the water. And I wonder what went through Jesus' mind when he saw all of that blood. This is, there's darkness all around him. Spiritual forces of darkness against him. And this is as dark and demonic as and ominous as, as a foreshadowing could be. And John reports all of this because he saw it firsthand. He's an eyewitness, and we need to trust his eyewitness testimony. And in telling the story, John is going to include details that we don't find in any other gospel. So they come to the garden, a place that they have been to before. Uh, uh, it was a place where they went to pray. Maybe it was a place where they had staff meetings, where they were doing ministry planning and all of that kind of stuff. But the point is, Judas knew the place. And he knew that Jesus and the others would be there, and he timed things just right, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And here's that unholy alliance I mentioned a moment ago. Now, an unholy alliance is where people who are enemies come together to align themselves against a common enemy. And John tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees were there with a huge detachment of Roman soldiers and, and officers from the chief priests. That's the temple guard, Jewish temple guard. And these Roman soldiers and these Jewish religious leaders, they didn't get along with each other. There was constant friction between these two groups because the Romans declared that Caesar was God and the Jews, of course, believed that the only one true and living God was Yahweh and so there was constant friction between these two groups. And Judas, demonically inspired, brings these enemies together 
in this unholy alliance because their common enemy was Jesus. Because Jesus was a threat to Roman leadership and to the religious leadership, they all wanted him dead. Now, by the way, this word band of soldiers or a detachment of soldiers is a word that refers to 600 trained battle-hardened, armed-to-the-teeth Roman soldiers. So you need to get this picture in your mind. You have Jews and Gentiles and Romans aligned together. You've got pagans and religious, Bible-believing people all coming together to arrest Jesus. And basically, this is the, a picture of the world rejecting Jesus. Now, by the way, this isn't something that happens suddenly. This is something that was plotted carefully. And Judas is sneaky. He's deceptive. He's dishonest. He's covert. You don't really know who he is until this moment right here, till the plot unfolds. And here it is. He comes with these soldiers. And, and I can't even imagine the shock that those 11 disciples must have felt at that time. I mean, put yourself in their place. I mean, if you were one of the 11, remember when Judas left that upper room, where they observed the Lord's Supper. When he left, you had no idea why he left. And you really didn't know. And so here you stand, you're standing with Jesus on one side, and then there's this mob of people. These Pharisees and Roman soldiers, their faces hard and angry and walking ahead of the whole group. Leading the whole group is Judas. I can't, I can't even imagine how shocked they were. Everybody is shocked except Jesus, of course, verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, all right, just stop right there. Jesus wasn't shocked. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him, and this is so important. It sets up my first point. Jesus is in complete control of everything that's happening. In this scene we see here at the beginning of John 18, he is in complete control of everything. He knows what will happen, and as we've seen over and over in our study through John's gospel, he's known for a long time that he's gonna go to Jerusalem and that he will be arrested and tried and suffer and died, but he doesn't just know what's happening, he is orchestrating what is happening. Point, he is not a helpless victim, and as we'll see in a moment, he is not powerful, powerless to stop what's happening. He's, he's very much in control of this situation. Now, at the end of a long day, sometimes I go home in the afternoon and, and sometimes I watch the news. And sometimes I like to watch the History Channel. And I've been watching this 10-part miniseries uh, entitled The Pacific on the History Channel. And it's about World War II and the war against the Japanese in the, in the Pacific after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Now, when I watch the news, I get anxious because the outcome of the events is uncertain. When I watch the History Channel, I'm pretty calm because I know the outcome, right? I know who won World War II. I know how it turns out. Now, here's the deal. For God, everything is the History Channel. <laughs> For God, everything is the History Channel. Nothing is news. And he sees it as all completed and done. And Jesus knew everything that would happen to him. And he steps forward and he says to them, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? 
Now, previously in John's gospel, when Jesus' enemies would come to arrest him or, uh, or when crowds would harass him or a, a mob would come against him, we're, we're told that Jesus somehow withdrew from them. He slipped away. He found a way out. He, he escaped. Here he steps forward. The moral of the story being, you and I need to walk in the will of God. And sometimes that means you walk away. And sometimes that means you step forward. Jesus walked away until the day came when it was time to step forward. And he steps forward and he takes control. He's completely surrounded by this military ambush, but Jesus is the one in authority. And he sets the agenda, he asks the questions, he gives the commands and the orders. It's all going according to plan. So he asked them, verse four, who are you looking for? And they answered Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And when Jesus spoke these words, you ready for this? When he spoke those words, they all hit the ground. They fell backward to the ground. Now this is so awesome to me. I am he. And over 600 men stumble backwards and they all fall down. That means Judas as well because John makes a point to say Judas was there with him. So Judas has nothing over on Jesus. Judas falls down. And Now, here, here's the thing that I, I wonder about. At this point, I wonder why nobody got saved. <laughs> like, like, why isn't anybody thinking, hey, maybe we're on the wrong side of this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, think about this. Everybody goes down. And the only ones standing are Jesus and those 11 men. Which, by the way, foreshadows the end of history. Because when Jesus comes back, everybody goes down. Jesus stands, everybody takes a knee. Jesus stands and get this, all those who are with Jesus will stand with Jesus on the final day. And that's what happens here. So the mob, I mean, they're getting themselves together they're getting back up and they're straightening their swords and their scabbards and their spears and their shields and getting their helmets back on straight. And Jesus asked again, who are you looking for? I, I, I tell you, if it was me, I'd be like, um, you know, we're not really sure. Uh, can I see that scroll again? Maybe it wasn't Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe it was Jeremiah of Nazareth. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, do you really wanna be blown down again or worse? I mean, what actually happened here? Why did they all fall down? Well, you know, the liberal commentators, they're, they're all like, well, they were just amazed that Jesus would answer the question so forthrightly. <laughs> uh, but most Bible-believing commentators say this, that for a brief second, a ray of Jesus' divine glory burst out. Remember the transfiguration? Like, like that... But much more brief, just a microsecond, and it was concentrated power, bam, and they all hit the ground. It's like the Christmas carol says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. I don't know if they saw it or they felt it. Like, like it's, it's like being hit in the chest by the sonic blast of a massive subwoofer at a deafening rock concert. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You've been there and you've got the seat in front of the speaker and it's like turned up so loud and it's, and it's, it's not just deafening, it's like pounding in your chest. 
I should not do that. Um, it's, it's pounding in your chest and you can feel it. And this is like a thousand times more powerful than that. Jesus' infinite glory and power are veiled, encased in flesh, hidden. But for one brief second, it shows itself to us in order for us to see that here is a divine figure of infinite power who is holding it back. He's holding it back. So here you have Jesus kind of flexing a little bit. Before he gives himself up, before he goes to the cross, he shows us who he really is. Just a glimpse, but it's enough to knock the entire Roman legion flat on their back. And they're there to arrest Jesus. They're coming to take him away. And I'm like, God, isn't this the time when you don't just blow them down, but you blow them away? Kind of like, remember the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, the Ark is the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the Ark of God, God's holy Ark. And these Nazi guys come and they steal it from Indiana Jones and they go off to a desolate desert place and they take off the cover of the Ark, which nobody's supposed to touch. And you remember what happens. I mean, God zaps them. The wrath of God electrocutes them. The wrath of God melts the faces off of a couple of them and destroys them all. Now, the moral of that story is don't mess with holy God. That's how God is portrayed in the movie, but that's the real God. I mean, the Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here in this garden on this dark night, this mixed crowd of Jesus' enemies, they're the raiders. They're not, they're not coming for an ark. They're coming for the real deal. They're coming after the Messiah. And for a brief moment, a bursting ray of God's wrath knocks them down. And fortunately for them, it didn't melt their faces off, but it could have. So what are we supposed to take away from all of that? Well, simply this. Again, Jesus is not the victim here. Jesus is in complete control. He has all the power he needs to end this thing right here and now, but he doesn't do it because he has submitted himself to the Father's will. Now, we don't read this in John's gospel, but the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen, he agonizes in prayer, asking his Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he ends that prayer by saying, but not my will, but thy will be done. He's already prayed that. That's already happened. And the, the prayer God did, the father did not answer Jesus' prayer the way that Jesus was asking. So Jesus has bowed the knee to the father's will. He submitted himself to this journey to the cross. So even though he has the power to stop what's happening, Bam, they all fall down. He takes control of the situation and he asks a second time, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I told you, I am he. Well, kind of he says that. There's no he in the Greek text. He just says, I am. I am, which as some of you know is the Old Testament name of God. You remember the story when Moses meets God at the burning bush when God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, the mightiest man on earth, and God says, go tell Pharaoh that the God of Israel says, let my people go. Moses asks a good question. He says, who should I say has sent me? 
because he was talking to a bush, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it's hard to go into the presence of the king of the mightiest nation on earth and say, a plant told me to tell you this. I mean, Pharaoh would be like, are you sure you weren't smoking that plant? But anyway, uh, that's in the CBV version, but Charlie Boyd version. But anyway, so Moses, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And the bush says, well, God says through the burning bush, he says, tell him I am sent you. I am the sacred name of God. I am that I am. I just am. No beginning, no end. Not a God attached to any part of creation, but the creator God, the one true and living God who created everything, not the sun God, the moon God, the cat God, the dog God, the frog God, the river of Nile God. No, it's I am has sent me. I am a name so sacred that the Jewish people would not say it out loud and they would not write it down. In the Old Testament, you'll find they will write the name. Everywhere it has Yahweh, the Lord in your Bible, Lord, capital letters, that's the Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. In their Bible, in the Old Testament, they write the name, the name. And here, like in many other places in the Gospel of John, John claims, I mean, Jesus claims for himself the sacred name of God. I am the God of Moses. I am the God of deliverance. I am the God that takes down nations. I am the God who raises up kings and brings them down. I am a God who can blow you down or blow you away if needed. Jesus is put to death because he keeps saying he's God. He fed hungry people, but they didn't crucify him for that. He, he loved children, but they didn't crucify him for that. He healed people, but they didn't crucify him for that. He kept saying he was God in the flesh, and that's why the Romans said he had to die, because Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, and that's why the religious leaders said he had to die because he's claiming to be God and that was blasphemy. And so everybody, they all had to kill him in order to silence him. Make no mistake about it, if Jesus had not said that he was God, he would not have been put to death. There is no major religion in history, in the history of the world, that has a founder that claims that he's God. Only Jesus makes that claim. And as many people have said, Jesus is either who, he's, who he claimed to be or he's a crazy person. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. So Jesus says in verse eight, if it's me you want, then let all these people go. Let these men go. This is a, com- a command in the Greek. Let these men go. I love how Jesus tells these unbelieving soldiers what to do. I mean, you know you have authority, like if an invading army shows up and and one of you told them what to do and they did it, I mean, that would be amazing. And here, Jesus has authority, he's in control. If he did not want to be taken, they could not have taken him. He's not a victim. He commands the cohort of soldiers, let these men go. And John says that he said that, verse nine, this was to fulfill a word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Now, we saw that in John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer, where Jesus said, it's going to look like I lost one, Judas, but I didn't lose him because I never had him. Judas was not a believer. He was a betrayer. You can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. And that was Judas. He was covert, and now his heart has been made overt. And we now know who he is. 
We now know what he's has done, and Peter is not liking what he's hearing. And he's, he's not planning to go anywhere. He's not willing for Jesus to be taken without a fight, and Peter is packing. Now, I'm not sure why a fisherman in a boat needs a sword. Uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to say that, do this really cheesy thing like about unless there was a swordfish, but I, I decided not to go there. That, but they're not in the Sea of Galilee anyway. But anyway, so I'm not sure why he needs a sword, but he has one. Verse 10, then Peter, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, which I think means he's left-handed, right? Maybe. Then the service name was Malchus. Now, I'm not gonna talk about Peter this week. We'll leave him till next week. But I'll just say, and many of you know this, but Peter is a hot mess. I mean, Peter is a drama queen. I mean, Peter is, it's like Peter is a reality show waiting to be filmed. He's like, don't worry, Jesus, I got this. And that's Peter, courageous but dumb. I mean, maybe he thought if he started the fight, then Jesus would go, pull back his flesh and, you know, just mow the rest of them down. I don't know. But Peter, though, um, you know, he goes after this lowly servant, not a soldier, but the high priest servant who I'm quite sure was not packing. He's probably the only one in the crowd that's unarmed. And, and he probably doesn't even want to be there. He has to be there late in the night because his master has made him go. And this is the guy that Peter goes after. And with a swing and a miss, he whacks off poor Malchus' ear. Now, in the movies, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've heard soldiers say, you know, they're holding a sword and they're like, I'm going to take some heads today. Never heard one say, I'm going to whack off an ear today. That's Peter. Now, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus just reaches down and picks up the ear and sticks it back on. So everything's okay with Malchus. I think his name's in there because I think he probably got saved later on, and everybody in the early church probably knew who he was. I don't know. That's my speculation. But all of this underscores my, my first point, and that is that Jesus is completely in control of every single thing going on here. They could not have taken him if he did not want to be taken had he not submitted to the Father's will. They could not take him. He could have blown them all out of the water. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, a moment ago, I talked about how Jesus prayed and said, Father, if you're willing... Remove this cup from me. Now, he's having submitted to the Father's will, he asked Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the question is, what is the cup? What is the cup? Well, this is the cup of God's wrath. And that is not really open to interpretation. When the Bible talks about a cup in a context like this, it's talking about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God poured out against sin and rebellion. In Ezekiel 23, 33, we read, you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation. In Isaiah 51, 22, after the ruin and desolation, um, Isaiah writes, this is what the sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out 
of your hand the cup that made you stagger. In other words, he's removing the judgment that has come. And he says, from that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. The wrath of God appears more than 600 times in the Old Testament using uh, uh, around 20 different words to describe it. And God's wrath is poured out on whole nations, is poured out on rebellious, sinful cities. His wrath is his justice. The Old Testament talks about God's wrath as a cup. It's a judgment day kind of thing. Now, it's not just the Old Testament, though. The New Testament talks about it in the same way. And some people say, yes, the wrath of God is in the Old Testament. The New Testament, though, is all about the love of God. No, the New Testament speaks of the wrath of God in, this, in much the same way. John wrote another book, the very last book of your Bible, and in that book, speaking of those who reject Jesus, he wrote in Revelation 14, 10, they will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Some, some of you are like, no, 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 that's not my God. My, my God is love. God is love. God is love. God is love. Yes, absolutely. God loves his people. And he gives wrath to those who are his enemies, to those who reject Jesus. Now, here's the deal. God's love and God's wrath are not at odds with one another. In the Bible, the number one attribute of God that is spoken about more than anything else in the Bible is the holiness of God. That God is good, he's not bad, he's just, not unjust, he's righteous, not unrighteous. God is active, not passive. God is loving and God is angry over how sin has brought hurt and pain and suffering and death into his good world. You see, there's a culture in heaven, the kingdom of God culture. And there's a culture in hell. That's the wrath of God culture. And as you and I are on earth, we have to choose. Will I live, it's one of my friends put it this way, will I live kingdom down culture or hell up culture? And what's a hell up culture? Well, it's a culture of sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed and arrogance and power grabbing and killing babies and oppressing the poor and needy and looking down on people because they look different from you, or to say it another way, America. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Really, according to Romans chapter one, it's already being revealed from heaven. In other words, it's like a fire. It is set, and that fire is burning, and one day it will consume everything in its path that is opposed to God. So you see, the, the wrath of God is the loving justice of God. Some people say, well, I just don't understand how a loving God could send people to hell. Well, here's my question. How could God take people to heaven? I mean, if God is perfect and heaven is perfect and you and I are imperfect, then why in the world do we expect that we should spend eternity there? You see, God is far more holy than we, we think and we are far more sinful than we think. Some people deny the wrath of God, some people ignore the wrath of God, and some people mock the wrath of God. 
And I hear it all the time, like, I don't think God has a problem with me. I mean, I'm living my life my way. I don't really think about him all that much, but I do whatever I want, and my life is great. Nothing really bad happens. I mean, how, how many of you heard that? I mean, how, you, 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 how many of you thought that? How many have you seen that? How many of you have been frustrated by that? Why do evil people doing evil things seem to get away with it? I'm not talking about just the average, typical person who's struggling and stumbling. I'm talking about evil, real evil, harming children, murdering babies, assaulting women, oppressing people of color and caste systems and all that kind of stuff. Why does this continue? Why does nothing happen? Why doesn't God show up and put a stop to it? Why doesn't God do something? You see, to ask those questions means that you want a God that loves us so much that he'll step in and put a stop to the evil in this world. That's God's wrath. That's God's justice. How can God be loving if he will not hold evil people accountable for the hurt and the harm they inflict on others? Again, I know, I hear you, you're saying, but my God is a God of love. He is not a God of wrath. And that may be true of you, but if it is true, your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God is not the God that Jesus came to reveal to us through his death on the cross for our sins. And I get it. I mean, I don't like talking about this stuff, but, I, but this, is, this is Bible. This is the truth. This is what we all have to face. I, 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 we, we, here it is. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And, and our, I, you see, our biggest problem with all of this this whole idea of God being a God of wrath is that we think of God's wrath in the same way that we think about our wrath. But the anger of God is not like human anger. God's wrath is never temper. God is controlled, and we see that in this passage. Uh, he's controlled. It's always, his wrath is always under control. It's, it's, not, it's not cranky. It's never arbitrary. It's never temper. And God's wrath is connected to God's love. They're not contradictory. They're, they're, they're two sides of the same God is holy coin. You see, he, here's the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus. God loves us so much that he came in the person of Jesus to take his own wrath against our sin into himself. God loves us so much that he came in the person of Jesus to take his own wrath against our sin into himself. And all those who turn from their sin to trust Jesus as their Savior experience an eternity of his love. And all those who reject Jesus are storing up God's wrath and they will die in their sin, John 8. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's New Testament. Those who rebel against God, those who reject his son, Jesus are getting away with nothing. They're storing up everything for the day of wrath. That is the cup. That's the cup 
And when Jesus went to the cross, metaphorically speaking, there was a cup that was filled with all of your sin, all of your faults, all of your failures, all of your rebellion, and Jesus drank every drop of it. On the cross, God is suffering and dying in the body of Jesus for you, and he's taking his own wrath against sin into himself for you. So that the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God so that we might experience the mercy of God and the love of God. Jesus took your place. He endured your wrath. Jesus took my place. He endured my wrath so I wouldn't have to. And that's my second point. He's in control of everything that's happening because he's orchestrating it so that he will end up drinking the cup of God's wrath for you so you never have to. That's the second point. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for you so you never have to. That's good news. Everybody fills a cup and every cup will be emptied. Either Jesus drank the cup for you or you will drink it yourself. The most important decision you'll ever make is this. Will I trust that Jesus drank the cup for me or will I drink it myself? Everyone fills a cup and every cup will be emptied. Either Jesus drank the cup for you or you will drink it for yourself. Think of it this way, one day you're, you're gonna die. And on the final day, you're not gonna stand before God and make an excuse, you're gonna stand before God and give an account. Hebrews 9 27 says each person is destined to die and after this comes judgment. Romans 14, 12 says, so then we will all give an account to God. Each one of us will give an account to God for what we have done and especially for what we have done with Jesus. And there will be brought forth, metaphorically speaking, there will be brought forth a cup with your name on it and one of two things will stand for all eternity. You will look in that cup and it's empty. It's empty, and Jesus says, I drank it for you. Now take this cup and go sit at my table, and I'm gonna fill it with blessing forever. Or you'll look in that cup, and it's full, and you'll realize, I didn't get away with anything. I was storing up for everything, and it's right here, and now I'm gonna have to drink this cup forever. Earlier in John's gospel, this is how he said it. John 3, 36, he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Cup of blessing. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The cup of wrath. Everyone fills a cup. Every drop in the cup will be drank. Either Jesus drinks to empty your cup, or you drink from it for all eternity. And it all boils down to Jesus. He's all you need to know. Jesus is all you need to believe. Jesus is all you need to trust. And when you put your trust in him, the cup of God's wrath for you is bone dry. Bone dry. And that's an amazing, gracious offer that God extends to you. That Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for you and for me so we wouldn't have to drink it. The wrath of God poured out on the Son of God that we could experience the mercy of God. 
So Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen, he knew that on that cross, he would drink the cup of God's wrath that we would have had to drink had he not died to save us from wrath. He drank from the cup of wrath so we could partake of the cup of blessing today and forever. I am really excited that today we get to uh, observe the Lord's Supper and we're gonna have communion in just a few minutes. And as, as you're holding the elements, the bread and the juice, as you hold them, think about what we've talked about this morning. Think about how Jesus drank my cup so I could partake of this cup. What a great reminder that on the cross, he drank, he drank the cup of wrath for us so you and I could drink the cup of blessing with him forever. Amen.